0: The markets, we just can't get enough of them.
1: Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy.
0: Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Coast and Mohamed Nallah. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied
1: by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment
0: thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 53 of Magic Markets. Mo, we celebrated our one-year anniversary last week on this awesome show. It's great to have you back, and we've got a lot to talk about. We can talk about the US, we can talk about Turkey, and we will be talking about some balance sheets of South African companies that have uh, somewhat blown up in recent times. But firstly, welcome. Always good to have you yeah' always a pleasure being on the show with you ghost and there's always that's the
1: beautiful part of magic markets, right? Is there's always something happening in the markets that's why we love it so much, so we're super excited as always to share this these views with our listeners and let's get straight into it, ghost. I mean, you touched on. Two of the key things that are happening globally. So I'm, I'm going to jump straight into the first one because I think that's actually the easier one to discuss, and that's with regards to the U.S. Federal Reserve. I mean, we've spoken about it. We've touched on the point that Jerome Powell was up for reappointment as the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, and there were some question marks. The question marks were: Is Jerome Powell going to get reappointed by President Biden? It is a presidential appointment. Uh, it does have to get ratified through Congress, and yes, he has. He has been reappointed for another term as the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, or as you may want to call him, king of free money. His vice chair, now Lael Brainard, uh, she's been there as part of the Fed's board of governors for quite some time, and she was tipped as the potential successor to Jerome Powell. She was viewed largely by markets as being a lot more dovish than Powell. And so I've seen some narrative today about how you know maybe uh, the yield on US 10 years have ticked up a little bit today because they are perceiving Jerome Powell to be a, a little bit more hawkish than Real Bra- Brainard. But the fact of the matter is, We've got a board of governors at the, at the Fed that are mostly doves. Uh, money is still easy for the foreseeable future. And right now, the guy who's spoken about the taper and liftoff of rates is still the guy who is in charge. So for me, it's pretty much autopilot at the Fed. Uh, we have made the distinction between liftoff and taper. We are in taper mode right now, which is taking your foot off the accelerator. We're not yet at liftoff stage. And when we start seeing that price into markets, that's likely gonna start coming through with some pressure. The big moves i guess have been on the u.s dollar and again like i say, it's a bit of a sideshow a longer term the narrative really remaining in play as expected
0: yeah no, i don't know what kind of hawk uh powell is maybe with like a broken win and a and a sore toe because there's not a lot of hawkish behavior that comes but i guess it's a land of the blind and the one-eyed man is kin kind of situation you know maybe for the benefits of our listeners my, maybe you could actually just spend a minute or two just explaining what the difference is between hawkish and dovish because these terms get thrown around a lot and not everyone necessarily understands what they mean.
1: Well, a hawk is an animal with a sharper beak than a dove, I guess. (laughs) At the end of the day, I mean, let's cut through the fluff and the jargon. Thanks for bringing that up. In market terminology, in central bank speak, a hawk is generally considered someone who's a little bit more conservative when it comes to policy. Uh, And so specifically when it comes to interest rates and inflation, a hawk is someone who's going to be predisposed to hiking interest rates, someone who's going to prefer higher interest rates and controlling inflation. A dove, by contrast, really, is the the more pleasant bird, you know, it doesn't have the sharp beak. It's a nice way to remember it, I guess. A dove favors lower interest rates. They're kind of more pro-growth rather than anti-inflation. And remember, it's not, in my view at least, it's not one or the other. All of these governors, you know, even the governor down in South Africa and, you know, the deputy governors and the Saab down there, everyone exists on a spectrum of hawkish to dovish. Yes, you lean a certain way. But when we go back to the Fed, when I said they're all pretty much doves anyway, is that there's a a thinking and an ideology that permeates an institution. And we cannot ignore the fact that for the longest time, the US Federal Reserve has been the put option on the markets. It's been there for the cheap and free money trade. It's been the lower for longer. And that's why even amongst a, a board that's full of doves, maybe in that context, Jerome Powell might be a hawkish dove, but he's probably a dove anyways.
0: And the equities markets have had a bit of a wobbly, haven't they? I mean, in general, because, you know, any kind of hawkish behavior hurts these big growth stocks. So that's something we saw in, you know, these Q3 earnings, and we talked about it last week, is not necessarily the market as a whole, but certainly the company's trading at gigantic multiples, especially when they don't necessarily have free cash flows and profits to back it up. You know, they've taken some serious pain from their all-time highs. And I just want to mention, you know, this is the kind of stuff we look at in Magic Markets Premium. So, for example, last week we looked at Monster, which, um, you know, makes a lot of money, has a lot of free cash flow, has a lot of profits, but the valuations are just bonkers. And a lot of these valuations, every time we seem to look at these companies, we, we come out at relatively similar conclusions, which is, you know, interesting companies, good businesses, lots of runway, et cetera. But man, the multiples are enormous. And a lot of it is just because of the number of dollars that have been printed in recent times. So if we see more hawkish behavior coming out of the Fed, you know, are we likely to see more of a correction in those multiples? And if we do that means that the US market's not necessarily going to be a great performer over the next sort of 18 to 24 months. And it's going to become a real stock pickers market, which is just as well, because that's what we'll be doing with our time in Magic Markets Premium.
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely vital is when these market cycles turn, you know, if you look at last year, you could literally have taken a dart, thrown it at the board, and pretty much everything went up. Uh, If you map the share price performance over the last year to real earnings growth over the last five years, that actually highlights to you how there's been a decoupling between the growth in the underlying business versus the share price performance. And that decoupling is largely, as you indicated, because you've had these massively low rates. You've had these companies gearing themselves up. We're gonna get into bad balance sheets and what happens with bad balance sheets when they happen to good people, or maybe bad people in some instances. But really, the fact here is that when... The margins are thinner when your margin for error is thinner. That's specifically what I'm talking about here. All you need are minor dislocations at the fringes that then cause massive dislocations in price. I mean, as we're speaking now, you know, a stock we've spoken about on this show uh, specifically has been Zoom, and Zoom had results out, and they missed by a small fraction. But the stock is down in the solid double digits today. So that just tells you that there's a lot of froth priced into those markets. And with rates as low as they are now, they don't have to go up a heck of a lot in order to start dislocating the math on valuations, specifically in some sectors more than others, that have become very stretched.
0: Yeah, a lot of what we talk about in Magic Markets Premium is growth multiples, so not just looking at stuff like PE ratios or EBITDA multiples, but how does that look relative to the growth rate of these businesses? What has been the long-term k of their earnings, and how have they achieved that, and what can they achieve going forward? So in Monster, for example, once we looked all the way down the income statement, we found an incredibly interesting trend, which suggested that perhaps the earnings growth rate may not actually be sustainable where it currently is. Interestingly enough, I see that Monster is potentially merging with another business. So it's very topical at the moment and certainly one to to keep an eye on. But Mo, before we get into some South African company discussions, the other thing that's in the news is the Turkish lira, which appears to have climbed on a rocket on the charts I've seen, which is not what people in Turkey want to see. What's going on there and you know, should we be traveling there this year because it's dirt cheap?
1: Well, firstly, I just want to say that if Management at Monster listened to our podcast and then made these actions, then I'm hoping that the Turkish policy are also listening to this podcast and they'll make some actions on the back of this as well. I mean, Turkey's been fascinating, Ghost. I mean, the, the lira has fallen another 15%. Yes, one, five, 15%. It's its second worst day ever. Uh, and it's really on the back of a series of losses, 11 straight days in a row, that take the lira down 45% this year. So the la- of that 45%, right, the last week has been 26% in and of itself. Now, what's caused all of this? What's caused the ruckus? Anyone who watches Turkey will know that they have a rather charismatic leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and he is quite involved when it comes to appointing his finance ministers and appointing his central bank governors. And when they don't do what he wants them to do, he fires them and appoints another one. And that's really, I guess, the playbook of what we've seen in Turkey over the course of the last several years. I wanna highlight that this is not something new. So, you know, Turkey between July 2019 and December 2020 had a central bank governor who was fired because he could not stop the fall in the lira. And then they appointed a new governor in and around the tail end of 2020. He was gone by the first quarter of 2021. Then their deputy governor just happened to be fired last month. And so I think the current governor might be feeling some of the political pressure that comes there. Hot on the heels of a 400 basis points cuts that have come through from September already. They cut again and they cut 100 basis points despite the fact that inflation in Turkey is running away. Now, what I mean when I say it's running away, again, we're not talking Venezuela and Zimbabwe, but we're talking inflation in the region of around 20%. Now, that's pretty hectic. If you speak to people on the ground in Turkey, they tell you that they're deferring purchases. They don't know what they need to be doing because their economy is falling apart around them as as they're standing. I mean, Turkish bond yields, 10-year bond yields, barely compensate you for that 20% inflation. You can get 21% on a 10-year Turkish bond if you want it. So, bearing in mind their policy rate has now been cut. It's down at around 15%. It's well below inflation. That's 5% negative real rates in Turkey. And it's because, again, the political pressure has come through saying we need to actually try and boost exports. We need to try and boost growth. And we don't really care that much about inflation. You know, this inflation is a conspiracy theory. And I guess, you know, this, this is really what happens when politics starts to infringe on the independence of central banks. It starts to get quite ugly. I certainly am glad that I'm not on the ground in Turkey, but let's see where this goes. I mean, we've seen this playbook before. If you look at a chart on the lira, it's been ugly. It's been ugly for a long time. It's just really sad to see them continually go down the same path time and time again.
0: Sounds like another country I know and, uh, and what we've done before with finance ministers, but luckily not as bad as that. So, yeah, I mean, it's quite remarkable when there's inflation in the U.S., You know, the sort of dollar as a reserve currency has a lot of resilience, but when it's in Turkey, (laughs) the lira just gets killed. So, you know, that actually brings us on to, to what we wanted to talk about on companies. So balance sheets apply at a fiscal level for countries, but also for companies. And the difference is companies can't print cash to get themselves out of trouble. They don't have a central bank printer. So when bad balance sheets happen to good people, it inevitably ends in a lot of pain for some of these companies. And I think that's been a big feature on the JSC and I'm sure on overseas markets as well, you know, over the past year, Mo. And what I wanted to do was actually just, you know, take the opportunity to chat through some of what we've seen on the JSC, just a couple of themes, uh, you know, as a nice reminder for you of what's going on in the market here. But also there's some interesting stuff in here, like how rights offers are sometimes used for, you know, strategic investors to actually go and take a bigger stake in the company at a, at a depressed level. So you can pick where I start. I want to talk about Tongat, EOH, Breit, and a little note on Kiro. So you can choose You can choose which one first.
1: So I think let, let's start off with Tongat. I mean, it, it's been one that I've kind of followed from afar. It's, I mean, it's really always in the headlines. And I think that would be a great place to start because, you know, Tongat, where you might in, in the back of your mind think, oh, it's sweet as sugar. It's really not been. And maybe take us through that, Ghost.
0: Uh, it certainly hasn't been. So it's been on a huge turnaround story. They managed to sell their starch business to Barlow World, perhaps the best balance sheet management company in South Africa right now. Barlow World's balance sheet management through the pandemic was exemplary, to say the least. But anyway, Tongod managed to get 450 million rand from Barlow World for that. And then they ate it. And they ate it for liquidity purposes. They blamed the civil unrest. It's gone. You know, it's like that South Park episode. And it's gone. That's That's what's happened to the 450 million rand. And uh, Tongot now is worth a billion rand and they are doing a four, four billion rand rights issue. Now, what that means is that they are basically going to existing shareholders and saying, unless you want to be diluted to smithereens, you need to go put a whole lot more money into our company. And interestingly enough, in Tongot, there's another, there's another element to this, which is that there's a Mauritian company that has now underwritten a huge portion of this rights offer And depending on how it all goes, this might allow them to actually take control of Tongot without then needing to make a mandatory offer because they go and get a dispensation from having to do it. So this is an excellent example of how a rights offer can actually become a way for a new investor to suddenly come in and take a huge stake. Now, that might sound terrible at first blush, but bear in mind, Tongot needs money. So you have to ask yourself, well, if there wasn't a big underwriter, you know, what might the outcome be? But shareholders are obviously unhappy. You know, the company looked like it was on a great turnaround and then suddenly the wheels just slowly came off. So, yeah, just shows there's always risk in buying a turnaround story.
1: I think that, that's so fascinating because, like you say, it almost creates the space, like you say, for an interested party to, to take out or take a majority stake. And sometimes that's a good thing because maybe the company needs a proper shakeup. Maybe we need to see leadership changing. And I mean, we talked about countries before this, and now we're talking about companies, but they're not that different. I mean, at the end of the day, badly run companies and badly run countries will need more capital. At the end of the day, it's about capital. And countries get it through capital flows and investors, but guess what? So do so do companies. And in this particular instance, I mean, yes, you're either diluted to nothing in a rights issue, And that's not terribly different to what we just discussed on the Turkish lira, is anyone holding Turkish lira is getting diluted to basically nothing. Uh, And I mean, it's not something that's not seen in international markets. I mean, very recently, and maybe this will lead into the next story, is we saw... Peloton saying, oh, we're not going to need the capital. And then went out and said, oh, well, we're going to have to raise a whole bunch of capital. And they're raising, I think it was another billion uh, worth of shares. And the market didn't like that. Uh, So it does happen globally. And again, it's when companies hit the skids, or maybe they just weren't making money to start off with. And investors thought it would turn around faster than it actually did. But why don't you then take us into the whole story around the other exercise story down in South Africa being Virgin Active and what's happened with its parent company?
0: Yeah, so Breit has been a hideous story. I mean, I actually had a look earlier. The share price has basically returned the same as Steinhoff, um, but doesn't have fraud. So that's, you know, no accolade. Christopher is not having a great time in his twilight years, I must be honest with you. Uh, the reality is that keeping Virgin Active alive over the pandemic has been very expensive because gyms have really been impacted by all of the lockdowns. People don't want to be sweating next to each other for understandable reasons in this case. And the reality is that Breit now needs another capital raise. It did one in early 2020. There was a whole balance sheet restructuring, and I guess the lockdowns have lasted longer than anyone really expected. So now there's another 3 billion rand capital raise in the the form of uh, convertible instruments, which will be listed separately now on the JSE underwritten by a surprise surprise ethos which also happens to uh, be linked to the advisor to breit for a hundred million rand a year fee which is lovely crystal Visa's entities titan and then Rand merchant bank they're also at the table so they will all be underwriting this thing and a bunch of the institutions have given irrevocable undertakings as well to to come on board so chances are they'll get it away i think it's something like 2.7 billion rand is already essentially committed. There's another 300 million that needs to come from, you know, the other investors, the, the poor men in the street, and uh, you know, it's another example of maybe how rights offers are used a bit opportunistically at times. But reality is, Brait needs the money. It's at a deep discount to its NAV, where the share price is currently trading. So for shareholders who don't follow their rights, they end up diluting at quite a heavy discount to uh, to NAV, and that's you know, that's not where you want to be. So unfortunately, the bad news carries on at Bret. And uh, this company seems to be really struggling to actually get out of trouble.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wanna pick up on something there because you've touched on the point where these can be used opportunistically. And we, we discussed it, for example, with Tongat about a foreign player coming in and maybe taking or following their rights and, and taking a larger stake in there. But it's also a question for me of the haves and the have-nots. I mean, in South Africa, you, you just discussed this whole Brayton and ethos structure and it's, it's a tight and intertwined system. It's a system of of insiders and outsiders, and for someone who's casually just investing in these stocks, the fact of the matter is that sometimes you're not really on the inside. You don't have the inside track. Now I think that's largely a product of something else we've discussed on the show when we discussed competition commission issues and so forth. Is that the South African market is fairly tight. Uh, it's generally a series of oligopolies, and so my question before we even move on to your next your next uh, story is, is this something that rewards patient capital or is it really just another way of insiders taking advantage of a situation where outsiders arguably wouldn't be predisposed to do so?
0: I like to, it's a great question. I like to always believe the best in people, but I've been in enough boardrooms to know that a lot of these big names didn't get wealthy by accident. So they are not shy. To, uh, to take some value away from minority shareholders given half a chance. Unfortunately, that is a reality. I've seen it myself and uh, it is what it is. You know, you play the game. If you buy into these high-risk companies, you must understand that if they run into trouble, they are going to need their anchor shareholder to get them out of trouble. And that anchor shareholder is not going to do it in a way that is kind to other shareholders. Unless that anchor shareholder's name is Walmart. Because the only example I can really think of is how Massmart was saved by Walmart instead of just taking private or huge rights issue underwritten by Walmart. I mean, it's beyond me. They, Walmart could have definitely taken that thing at a much cheaper price than it is now. And yet they allowed minorities to come along for the ride. They gave financial assistance. They've, done, they've gone overboard. It's almost like they were worried about ESG headlines, you know, and doing bad business in Africa. I can't imagine why else they've done this. Well, ghost, we are running out of time, and I I don't
1: want to let you go without bringing in one of your favorite topics. I know EOH has been a bugbear of yours. I know you've been invested, and I think you may have exited your position. But quickly take us through the EOH story down there. You know, bad balance sheets do sometimes happen to good people. Which, in your instance, as a shareholder of EOH, it seems as though the bad balance sheet may have bitten you as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, EOH has certainly bitten me, and uh, the problem is that they've they've taken too long to sell the divisions that they need to sell in order to deal with the debt. So. I learned this the hard way. It's easy to build a financial model that says, okay, great, well, you go and sell these divisions and then you pay down a whole lot of debt and you know, here's what's left of the equity. Sounds lovely, until it takes too long to sell those divisions while you're racking up a massive interest bill. And you can always just relate it to your own personal life. If you've got huge debt running in the background, you know, you need to get rid of it quickly. It doesn't help to take a long time to get rid of it because otherwise all you're doing is paying off interest. So that's largely what's happened with EOH. And yes, I exited the trade. I think the ICT industry, you know, hardware, just IT hardware distribution is under a lot of pressure. And I just wanted to get out the way of that thing. I pretty much got out evens. So on the whole, not a terrible outcome, not the outcome I wanted, but not a bad one either. And yeah, sometimes turnaround stories don't work. Sometimes they do. Nampac's a great example. You know, PPC is another wonderful example. Avenge is working out if you got in recently. If you were in one of the several rights offers before that, not so lacquer. So yeah, it's, it's, these turnaround stories are exciting, speculative, best left for a small portion of portfolios. But my, I think that's really all we've got time for. Thanks for the updates on on Powell, on Turkey, on, on the world of macro. And uh, I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed learning a little bit about these rights offers as well. Most importantly, go and check out Magic Markets Premium. That is really where we do our best, most detailed work. Um, The subscribers are really starting to come in now, which is fantastic. People are enjoying it. We're getting good feedback. They're sharing it with their friends. So check it out. Go check out magic-markets.com and subscribe.
1: Yeah, Ghost, thanks. It's been a pleasure doing this show with you. And I must echo your sentiments. If you really are interested in scratching beneath the surface, join us at magic-markets.com for our deep dives on specific global stocks where we unpack these issues in a lot more detail, applying both our top-down as well as our bottoms-up lens to bring you something that we think is truly unique. Ghost, thanks so much. Until next week, same time, same place.
0: Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.